Um, I would invite you right now to look inside of your bulletin and pull out the, the handout that's there. On the front of it, it should say, Shining in Suffering. It's a topic of, uh, of our text this morning. And on the back side of it, so it's basically a sermon outline that you can follow as I go through the message this morning. On the back side of it is the MPG. And as a reminder, MPG is not miles per gallon, but memorize, pray, and glorify. And there's going to always be a passage for you to, uh, from the text that we're going to ask you to memorize. There's going to be a special prayer for you to pray this week. And then there's going to be an activity uh, that we, that's in the glorify section and all of that in an effort to take the sermon a little bit further down the road. Now, before we get into the text, just, just a reminder, too, that, uh, you, you know, life is about making decisions and making decisions well and making decisions wisely based on the best information and, and on the, uh, the, the, the best available path in front of you. And I think that there are some major questions that people have to ask and answer in life. Uh, one of them is, you know, what work am I going to do with my life? I mean, you have to spend some time thinking through and, and coming up with a wise answer to the kind of work that you're going to dedicate your life to. Another is a, a person to love. Thinking wisely and deeply and profoundly about the person that you're going to love. But really the most important question is the kind of person that I'm going to be. And maybe you have been thinking about for some time, or maybe not very long at all, about becoming a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. I will say without a shadow of a doubt that it is the greatest decision that I ever made of my, in my life. It has not been the easiest of lives. Being a disciple of Jesus is not an easy life, but it is the most significant life, a life with resources, a, a, a life of, 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 of being free from the guilt of the things that we know that we do that harm other people and you know, harm creation. It is a life being brought into a family, and most importantly, it's a life that's brought into the presence of God. And if you've been thinking about becoming a disciple of Jesus, of being born again into his family, then I would ask that before you leave this morning, that you come and you find me, you find one of the shepherds or staff ministers, so that we can talk or even set up a time to talk about what it means to live this most significant life of all lives. And that can happen today. Now, we are in a series that I've been calling Shine. And it's taken out of the letter that we call Philippians, out of the Christian scriptures of the New Testament. And it's based primarily on this text, Philippians chapter 2, verse 15, up here on the screen that says, Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. I want you to say that with me. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. We say that things are beautiful that shine. We think of beautiful brides. You know, I've, I've done, I don't know how many, how many uh, uh, weddings in my lifetime, and you think you know what that bride's going to look like until everybody stands and the music plays, and she walks down the aisle with her father, and she just glows. Brides are beautiful, and they shine. A diamond in a ring or on a necklace. I mean, it catches the sunlight, it catches the light, and it just sparkles. There are smiles that you see, and there are grins that you see every day on the face of human beings, and you just think that that beautiful smile beams. Things that shine are beautiful things. The same can be said about things that, um, 
that shine, that they're noticeable. They're not just beautiful, but they're noticeable. Something that shine grabs your attention. It captures your imagination. And when Paul says, you, the church, not just in Philippi in the first century, but San Antonio in the 21st century, that you shine among them like stars in the sky, what he is saying is that the church is a beautiful and noticeable presence that shines in the world. That the church is a beautiful and noticeable presence that shines in the world. Now, when we first started talking about Philippians and how the church shines, we talked about it in terms of how we shine with people. Paul is thankful. You know, Paul is thinking about the church in Philippi. He's in a prison. And when he thinks about the people in Philippi, he doesn't start thinking about critical things. He doesn't start calling people out. You know, what he does is in the very beginning of this letter, he says, I thank God every time I remember you. Now, you think about that in the context of the culture that we live in right now. It's call out. It's cancel. It's hypercritical. I mean, just look at Twitter. And it's in the middle of that kind of a culture that the church shines because we are thankful for our brothers and sisters. We understand that they have been made holy, that they have been made saints by God. There's nobody else on the planet like the people that make up the body of Christ. They are a God work in progress, meaning that God has put His Spirit in us, not just His Word, but His Spirit, in order that we might become a different kind of a human being. We are a God work in progress. And not only that, not only are we saints, not only are we a God work in progress, but we are kind of dedicated to each other, unified with each other in the body of Christ, working together in order to bless the world. And one of the things that makes the church special and it just shines in this kind of a culture is that we're thankful for the faithful. We're thankful for the faithful. And then the second lesson had to deal with unity. You know, there are reasons to not stay together. There will always be reasons to separate, to not stay together. They will always present themselves whenever and wherever there are people that are present. The church shines, though, in the midst of all of its diversity. People don't have to agree politically. They don't have to have the same money in the bank. They don't have to wear the same clothes. They don't have to go to the same college, the same schools. They don't even have to have the same color of skin. But in that diversity, we are unified. We are a community of unity in spite of the diversity. And the reason for that, you know what the, the most famous verse in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's the one that we always quote, but we quote it this way. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the verse begins this way. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord your God is one. The church is one as God is one. Now this morning, I want to I talk about suffering, and I want to begin by talking a little bit about how the church, uh, how it got started in Philippi. And so we're going to go to Acts chapter 16. Paul and his entourage, they arrive in Philippi. And we're told that, you know, Philippi is a pretty important city. It is the, the capital, uh, or the, it's, the, it's a Roman colony, and it's the leading city in that particular part, that district. And so Paul and his entourage get there, and on a Sabbath, they get together and they go outside the city gate where they expect to find a place of prayer. And they do. And what Paul finds is a group of women there, and he begins to speak to them about the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension, exaltation of Jesus, the good news, the gospel of Jesus. 
And we're told that there's this really important lady. There's a, a woman by the name of Lydia from Thyatira. She's affluent and has a, a, a rather large business going, and she's made a lot of money selling purple cloth. And Lydia and her entire household, they hear the gospel from Paul, and all of them are baptized. Sometime later, Paul and the fellas decide to go back to that same place of prayer one day, and they are met by a slave girl, and the slave girl has a special skill. She is a slave girl who is possessed by a demon who gives her the ability to be able to predict the future and to talk about events before they happen. And she is a slave girl who is possessed, which means that she's making money for some dudes that own her. And she begins shouting. She's following Paul and his entourage around. And she begins shouting, These are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And Paul is trying to go about his day, and this woman is following, and she keeps saying the same thing day after day after day. And finally, and for some reason, we don't know why, Paul just decides that he's going to do something about that. And as she's following and doing all of the things that she's doing, he turns around and he says to the demon inside of this woman, Get out. And the demon does. And this woman is brought to wholesomeness, and, and she's brought to flourishing, she's brought to health. She's become a human being again and not possessed by this demon. Well, you would think that you know, nobody had ever seen anything like that happen in their life, and you would think that people would just be ecstatic. Look at what, what great power, what great healing power has come into our city. But these guys were making a lot of money off of that young woman that they have enslaved, and they're kind of hacked off. They've lost their meal ticket. And so they decide that they're going, to, they're going to grab Paul and Silas and they drag him into the marketplace in front of the magistrates and they begin to accuse Paul and Silas of, of being agitators in the city and they are a danger to the city of Philippi. Well, a crowd hears about this and crowds do what crowds do. They begin to run and to hear what's happening and what's going on. The magistrates say, we've got to do something. So they order Paul and Silas to be stripped down and to be beaten and for their troubles, they're going to toss them into prison. And so they're in prison for just healing a woman, bringing health back to a woman. They're in prison, and we read the following, the most, the most amazing thing. Acts 16, beginning in verse 23, After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully, which meant your life depends on them staying in jail. And when he received these orders, he knew exactly what it meant, and that's why he put them in the inner cell. So even if they did get out, they would have to go through all these passageways and corridors to be able to get out of the prison. Likelihood would be that they would not escape, they would be caught. And not only that, he fastens their feet in the stocks. They are not getting out. And so there they are, beaten, stripped down, in stocks, in chains, in the inner cell, and it's midnight. What are you going to be doing in midnight? Paul and Silas were praying. And they were singing hymns to God. In prison, midnight, hurting, but worshiping. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Now, you know how the story continues. There's an earthquake, the prison doors fly open, the chains are loosed, thinking that everybody is going to escape and that he's going to be held responsible. The prison guard decides that he's going to fall on his sword and kill himself. But Paul shouts, don't do it, we're all here. And this guard is just, 
He's absolutely, he, he's just astonished that they're still there. And he falls down in front of the Paul and the Silas who he had heard worshiping in the worst of conditions and says, you know, what must I do to be saved? And later that night, the, the jailer and his entire household are baptized into Jesus. It's an amazing story. And that's how the church in Philippi got started. Now, it's some years later, and Paul is writing a letter again to the church in Philippi. Now, traditionally, we think that uh, he was in Rome or Ephesus, but do you know where he is specifically when he writes this letter? He's in prison. Now, again, traditionally, we think it's a, a Roman prison, probably not a Roman prison, perhaps a, a, a prison or a jail in Ephesus, although he never identifies it, but he's back in prison. And three times in the first chapter of Philippians, he says these words, I am in chains. In verse 13, he says, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in what? Chains for Christ. And not only is Paul back in prison, this is not the first time he's back in prison, but some are adding insult to injury by kicking him while he's down. And they're making a lot out of the fact that Paul's in prison, but they're out free, and that they're the ones that are going to be preaching about Christ. And Paul says, okay, kick a guy when he's down. And he says in verse 17, some are going to preach Christ out of selfish ambition, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in, say it, chains. So he's back in prison. Probably meant that he'd been beaten again. There are brothers that he hears about that are taking advantage of the situation to put him down to lift themselves up. And he's in chains. He says, I'm in chains, I'm in chains, I'm in chains. But then verse 18, what does it matter? What? You're in prison. The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. 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 You know the word rejoice, uh, uh, that word appears in every chapter of Philippians. And, and don't forget what Paul and Silas are doing in the Philippian prison. He's in another prison and you know he's rejoicing in that Philippian prison in Acts chapter 16. He's praising God and rejoicing in God's grace. And he's singing and he's, he's praying. Paul and Silas, in this prison, things have not gone right, or not at least expected. And Paul and Silas have found a way to not just bear the chains, to bear all of the bad stuff, but to triumph over them. Paul does not think all is lost. Paul does not think that all has come to a stop just because he is in chains. In his mind, the gospel is going to continue to advance. And the reason that Paul is able to do this is that Paul has something that helps him to deal with all of life. And the key for Paul is not trying to avoid suffering because that's impossible in the fallen world that we live in. You are going, everybody is going to suffer. The key is how to go forward in suffering. Avoiding suffering is impossible. Everyone has to deal. Everyone in this room, myself, you, everyone has to deal at some point in their life with intimidation and fear and pain. 
Everyone has to deal with the unexpected setback. Everyone will be on the receiving end of a disappointment or a disaster and will be living in dismay. There are going to be feelings of defeat and uh, powerlessness and vulnerability. And a lot of the time it's going to be without explanation. You know, we don't always get the information we need to make sense of something. And even if we made sense of it, it doesn't mean that the pain is going to go away. So a lot of time, it's going to be without the facts. It's going to be without the information that makes sense of it because sometimes it's just senseless. And a lot of times, it's going to be unjust. There are going to be things that are brought into your life that you don't deserve. It's unjust. You didn't do anything to deserve it. Now, sometimes you do. You know, a lot of times, I get blamed for everything I do. That's my motto in life. You know, and you get blamed for everything you do, too. That there are going to be times when things are going to happen to you and you don't deserve it. And sometimes it's going to be for doing the right thing. Paul says at the end of the first chapter, and it's been granted to you to suffer for Christ as well. Suffer and suffering. If we do not have what Paul has, when the bad times come, and they will, they will make us dark and they will make us hard. And we will not shine. And that's why, as disciples of Jesus, understanding the world as we do, we have to form a new intention a new intentionality about how to live. Think about the word intentional. We, we parent our kids intentionally. We have intentional marriages. We have you know, jobs that have this word intentional attached to them. When, when someone lives an intentional life, it means that they plan their day with purpose. They get up and they know what they got to accomplish. They're living their day with purpose, whatever that purpose might be. Their actions are deliberate. They have a clear idea of what progress is. They have a clear idea of what success is. Their energies are focused on those goals. Now, for a lot of people, that intention for life is pleasure. You know, let the good times roll. You know, let let the good times roll. Life is about pleasure. Since the beginning of time, there have been people that thought that pleasure was the core was the core value of life. And the philosophers call them hedonists. The word hedone in Greek means pleasure. That's where the word hedonist comes from. Now, there's nothing wrong with pleasure. I kind of like pleasure. But pleasure does not last, does it? You can have pleasure for an extended period of time, but at some point the pleasure stops because we live in a world where suffering is inevitable. Suffering and setback, inevitable. And when the suffering comes, it will drive the pleasure away. And the person who says that pleasure is at the center of life, that, that pleasure is the core value of life, is going to say when the suffering comes, I don't have a life. I don't have a life. Well, there are other people that believe that strength or power in all and any of its forms is the highest attribute. That's the goal of life. But our bodies age out, and our strength leaves us. I turned 60 this year and can no longer work like I could when I was 25 in the sun. You know, our bodies age out. The strength begins to leave us. We don't have the stamina. 
You know, we don't have the endurance that we had when we were younger. And you know, and, and again, I'm, I'm going to apologize for being so self-referential this morning. But you know, one of the things that happens to me, and has happened to me the older I get, and it happened before I turned 60, I'm turning to emotional mush. I mean, I'll cry at the drop of a hat. You know, there was a time when I, you know, um, you know, people would say, you know, I've known Mark for a long time. I don't know if I've ever seen him cry. If you've known me over the last 20 years, you've seen me cry a lot. Strength cannot be the basis for life. It goes. Some people want to live a good moral life, however that might be defined. And their confidence, the poise, the buoyancy that they have in life is not in having stolen anything in their life. They've never lied. I've had people say, you know, I've, I'm, I'm a good person because I've never intentionally hurt anyone. Or, or it's, you know, I've earned my way. I've never had to depend on anyone. I've never intentionally, you know, hurt anybody by what I said or by what I did. Yet the, the clues, the, the evidence, the scenes that are played out before us every day say the contrary. That what is true is what Paul says to the Romans in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that we all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. No one is perfect. And if no one is perfect, then where's the morality? Paul, on the other hand, can face anything because he has a new intention in his life. He has a new intention. And he says it, he begins to describe it in verse 20. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now as always, so that now as always, so that now as always, every day of my life from here on out, so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body. What I tend to intend to do, Paul says, every day, is to exalt Christ in my body, whether by life or by death. And Paul is able to say that because of all the things that he has seen in the kingdom of God and you know, all that has happened, so that he has now come to a new intention in life that can be summarized. For him, there's only one bottom line. He says in verse 21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Will you say that with me? For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Let's do it again. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, do you hear what he's doing? He is, he is connecting. I mean, Paul is in prison, right? I mean, he's not in the Mediterranean someplace on a yacht. He's in prison when he says this. And in saying this, what he's doing is connecting Christ, the reality of Jesus, the, the history and the meaning and the purposes and the works and the blessings of Christ to all of life. I mean, he's incredibly realistic, right? He's not, he's not, he's not just saying this because he's on that yacht somewhere in the Mediterranean. I mean, for goodness sake, he's, he's in prison. Think carefully about what he's saying. Think carefully about what he's saying. If that's true, 
then when relationships fall apart, as painful as that is, as sad and tragic as that is, you know that you will somehow land on your feet because for me to live is Christ. When the job is a disappointment or there are failures in job performance, it's not devastating because for me to live is Christ. And when health disappears, as frightening as that is, unnerving as it is, to face a health crisis, you can get through it. Because for me to live is Christ. And if that's true, and it is, then even death can be gain. One of the ways that the church shines in suffering is this way. The church shines when it can sit in present sorrows and see eternal joys. Paul is in prison, and it's not just Paul, it's Silas. He's in prison, and he's worshiping God. Paul is in the stock and in chains and in pain. He's singing praise to God. Paul is in prison again, and he's got this word that people are making it really rough on him, kicking him while he's down. But he's rejoicing because to live is Christ. And to die is gain. I want to challenge you this morning to start doing two intentional things every day. Number one, define your life by Christ. Define your life by Christ. One of the things I would have you pray this week are these words. For me to live is Christ. Say it with me. For for me to live is Christ. Say it with me. For me to live is Christ. Pray that to God. I mean, Christ defines what a meaningful human life is all about, right? The bottom lines do not define your life. The, the bucket lists do not define your life. I mean, think about bucket lists. Bucket lists are, you know, climbing Mount Everest. It's, you know, kissing a stranger at the top of some hotel in Barcelona. I mean, that's why people put that in bucket lists. But if Christ defines your bucket, then your list is going to be different. And when Christ is defining your life and giving you a meaningful life, then things like, you know what's on my bucket list? I want to teach kindergartners about Jesus. I want to go to Haiti. I want to spend my own money to go to Haiti to dig a well for people who don't have fresh water. I want to talk to the homeless guy on the street today and just let him know I may not be able to help him, and he may be in a situation that at least from where I stand is irreparable, but I'm going to talk to him like he's a human being and made in the image of God. That is a different kind of a bucket list. Define your life by Christ, and then number two, define your death by Christ. Define your death by Christ. Paul returns to the reality of suffering in chapter 3. He says, beginning in verse 10, Man, do I want to know Christ. Yes. To know the power of His resurrection and participation. He's returning to sufferings participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attain to the resurrection from the dead. I define my life by Christ. For me to live is Christ, and I define my death by Christ. The resurrection. Resurrection from the dead. The resurrection means that it it all comes back. Living in the presence of God forever and ever and then some. 
It means the love that we flourish in, that was, a, that was there in its purest God form in the Garden of Eden. Could you imagine being Adam and Eve and walking in the love of God as they walked with God personally? That's why Genesis 3 is so awful. It's about loved ones coming back. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You know, at the end of of Jesus' life, before he is arrested and tried and mocked and beaten, spat upon and crucified, he prays this prayer in John 17. It's an astonishing prayer. And in this one verse in John 17, he says, he's praying to God. This, This is what he's saying to God in the hearing of his disciples. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. I'm sanctifying myself in order that they might be sanctified. What he's literally saying is that I set myself apart as a holy sacrifice. I set myself apart as a holy sacrifice in order that they might be set apart, that is, to become saints to become the people of God. In other words, he's saying, I live for them. I live for their good. I live for their blessing. I'm going to die for their forgiveness. I'm going to die for their restoration to God. I'm going to die for them to have life and life abundant. I'm going to die and to go away in order for the Spirit to come. He is saying, for me to live or me to die is for you. And when we realize what He has done for us, then we can say with Paul, because you live for me and because you died for me, for me to live is Christ. 